0: It was a critical time in the church of Jesus Christ. After beginning the pure doctrine of Christ and his apostles, the church of our Lord was beginning to drift away from the centrality of Christ. Beginning to look not to his priesthood, but to an earthly priesthood. Men who would give sacrifices to God. In losing focus on his supreme sacrifice they were again returning to thinking to sacrifices done on earth by human priests it was a critical danger something had to be done and a man of God moved by the Holy Spirit did something he picked up pen or quill he penned the epistle to the Hebrews see the problem that Luther corrected in the Reformation was a perennial problem of the church and the letter to the Hebrews was written to a Christian church tempted to return to the temple system, tempted to return to an earthly priesthood, tempted to return to sacrifices being repeated. And if you read through the epistle to the Hebrews, you cannot escape the repeated refrain that Christ is better, his covenant is better, his priesthood is better, his sacrifice is better. Now, 1500 years later, the Church of Jesus Christ was again being drawn away into the same error. We've been studying the, the five solas of the Reformation, five foundational truths, five onlys that are critical to Christian truth, gospel truth. And you may ask, why were the reformers of the 16th century so committed to these five foundational truths? We've already looked at sola scriptura. Scripture alone, sola gratia, by grace alone. Last week, Pastor Daniel, sola fide, by faith alone. This morning, solus Christus, through Christ alone. And next week, sola de gloria, to the glory of God alone. Why why such an emphasis on these alones? Because the church of the Middle Ages had somehow inserted itself in the place of, or at least alongside of, these onlys. So it wasn't scripture alone anymore, but it had become a scripture in the church alone. And it wasn't Christ alone, it was Christ in the church, and so on. This morning as we look at this, I'm going to argue exclusively from the book of Hebrews. There's a, there's a wealth of texts that we could argue the exclusivity of the person of Christ, the work of Christ, But I found no other book dealing with the specificity, specifically of the points we're going to look at this morning, than the book of Hebrews. So we'll be looking at a number of texts, but all of them within three or four chapters of Hebrews. In fact, if you'd open your Bible, to Hebrews chapter 9. That's where we're going to begin. When we think of Christ alone, what are we thinking about? Pastor Daniel very helpfully asked that question last week. Faith alone. For what? Faith alone isn't the answer for every problem in life. Christ alone. For what? And there's a lot we could talk about. We could talk about Christ alone is the king of his church. He is the king. He's the head. And there is no human head equal or equivalent to him. There is no vicar of Christ. We could talk about that. We won't be this morning. We could talk about Christ alone as our prophet. Bringing us God's word, he is, according to the book of Hebrews, the final and ultimate revelation of God who spoke to us long ago and in many ways, he has now spoken to us in son. And actually, it's Christ's ministry as priest and his sacrifice as priest that we'll be looking at this morning. We're going to address two, two important, critical truths of, of Christ's supremacy. Uh, the points are, Christ alone is our sacrifice for sins. Christ alone is our great high priest. We'll be looking at those two points, and I can think of no better place in the book of Hebrews to make these points. So this could be established from numerous texts all over the New Testament. I don't want you to think that these truths depend on the book of Hebrews. They by no means do. But for our ease, we will be looking at this exclusively from Hebrews. And and the danger that was facing the Christians in the first century and the danger that, that was facing the church in the 16th century is a perennial danger that we drift away from the centrality of Christ. It wasn't that Rome had denied the importance of Christ. They'd simply inserted other things, namely themselves, up alongside of him. And his sacrifice was not unique and alone, but his sacrifice is being presented every week in the Mass, his priesthood is no longer seen as unique as our great high priest, but human priests were claiming his authority. And so we'll be studying Christ alone. It is is good news. This is the good news of the gospel, what God has done for us in and through Jesus Christ. So I'd like to begin by looking at point one, Christ alone is our sacrifice for sins, The human problem boils down to one question. How can you, how can I stand before a holy and righteous God? How can you and I as sinful people stand before a holy and righteous God and not be obliterated, sentenced to hell? God's answer is the person of his son. And everything else that we've seen, that this salvation is revealed according to scripture. That this salvation is by grace and not debt and obligation. And that this salvation is credited to us through faith. But all of that centers around the linchpin of the one who accomplished our salvation, the one who is our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so first, I want to argue that Christ's sacrifice is fully sufficient. Christ's sacrifice is fully sufficient. That The sacrifice that Jesus gave, offering himself on the cross on our behalf, it was enough it needs no supplement. It needs no treasury of merit. And it leaves no remaining guilt or condemnation that must be purified in purgatory. But Jesus' death is sufficient. So let's look at the letter to the Hebrews. Because remember, the, the Hebrew Christians were tempted to go back to the Jewish temple system. They were tempted to return to sacrifices and human priests. And so the author of Hebrews is telling them no, don't do that. Don't, don't drift from the centrality of Christ and his sacrifice. His sacrifice is sufficient, it is enough. Let's pick up in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. <clears throat> But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have to come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goat and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the foul persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And I want you to focus on here is the emphasis in verse 12, once for all. And the contrast here is that these sacrifices in the temple system are taking place continuously. The temple, you may have seen pictures of it, and I always think the pictures I see when people draw Solomon's temple, Herod's temple, it's way too clean. It would look like a slaughterhouse on the inside as the sacrifices of animals was taking place continually. It was a bloody place, as animals and pigeons and lambs and bulls were constantly being sacrificed. And in contrast to this ongoing perpetual system, the author of Hebrews says, Jesus entered, verse 12, once for all, not repeatedly. And not by means of the blood of goat and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And that eternal is in contrast to a temporary one, a a covering that lasts for a day, for an hour, for a month. Jesus provides a redemption that will not end. It is permanent. It endures. And through it, he cleanses our conscience from dead works. Look at verse 26 of the same chapter. In the middle of the verse, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is is Christianity 101, but it, it bears repeating. On the cross, Jesus took upon himself, not some, not most of, but all, the entirety of our sin. All of it. He drank the cup of God's wrath to the dregs. He removed it all from us. This is the good news of the gospel. There remains no stain. There remains no remaining guilt. There remains no penalty. There remains no anger from God. How blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the one whom the Lord does not count iniquity. That blessing comes through Jesus' sacrifice. He took away, that's your blank, it has taken away our sin. Verse 26, he appeared at the end of the age to put away sin. He has accomplished this. There is no need for purgatory to finish the cleansing job. And there is no need for a treasury of merit to get extra righteousness from. He has taken away our sin. Not only has he taken away our sin, because you might argue, well, Christ has removed our guilt, but we still need a positive righteousness. After all, Adam was without guilt, but Adam is not positively righteous. So, so maybe Jesus' sacrifice removes our guilt, but, but now through the, the merit of saints and through other means, we, we can receive a righteousness. That will not fly either. Point two. Jesus' sacrifice not only has taken away our sin, it has purified and sanctified us. It has purified and sanctified us. Verse 14 of chapter 9. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify, make pure, our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. But even more clearly, look in chapter 10, verses um, 10 through 14. and By that will, we have been sanctified, which means made holy, set apart. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There it is. Our sanctification, our being made holy is through Jesus' offering of his body. Verse 11, every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. You're gonna see the contrast here. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Get this, Christ's death is the basis of your forgiveness and Christ's death and resurrection is the basis of your righteousness. Not only has he taken away your sin by giving himself up on the cross, he has perfected, you will be glorified because of that. When we talk about Christ alone, what we mean is when you look for Forgiveness, when you look for satisfaction for your sin, look no place else than Christ. Do not look to Mary, do not look to the saints, do not look to the treasury, look to Christ. And when you look for a righteousness, when you look for purity, when you look for perfection and glorification, look to Christ. His death alone supplies that. This is good news. This is the best of news. Christ's sacrifice is fully Sufficient, fully sufficient. It is enough. It is enough. But not only that, point B, Christ's sacrifice was offered once for all. Christ's sacrifice was offered once for all. And, and here what I'm thinking of is, is not just Rome's view of, of purgatory and of the necessary of extra good works from a treasury of merit, but also Rome's understanding of Christ's sacrifice in the giving of the Mass. And when I, what I cite here, I do simply to, to, to back up what I say, not in any way to try to make conflict. I think Rome and the Protestant church 500 years ago understood they had a real difference of opinion. I think today we have a real difference of opinion. It doesn't mean we have to be uncivil, it doesn't mean we have to be rude, but it doesn't do us any good to pretend we don't have a real difference of opinion. Now, understand that as opposed to what we do when we take communion, where we view it as a as a memorial, as a marker, as an ordinance. We do it in remembrance of him, and it points to something real. In Rome's view, the the, the Eucharist, as they call it, is the representation of Christ crucified. I'll read to you from the, the Catholic Catechism. You can look it up on the Vatican website, paragraph 1366. Quote: The Eucharist is thus a sacrifice because it represents The sacrifice of the cross. Paragraph 1367. The sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. Paragraph 1405. Every time this mystery is celebrated, the work of our redemption is carried on. And we break the one bread that provides the medicine of immortality, the antidote for death, the food that makes us live forever in Jesus Christ. Paragraph 14, 14. as sacrifice, the Eucharist is also offered in reparation of sins for the living and the dead. Get that, the, the Eucharist is given to forgive sins. It is a real sacrifice. They say it's a bloodless sacrifice. there's a real sacrifice that really accomplishes forgiveness. It's not a, it's simply a memorial, it's not simply a sign. It is the thing itself. Which is why they can say the Eucharist being the actual physical presence of Jesus is to be given the same worship and the same adoration due God. That's not my words. The Eucharist, because it is the real sacrifice, it is the thing that takes away sin. It's one and the same as the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, is to be adored and worshiped as God. In fact, in many churches um, that have this adoration, the Eucharist is displayed in a special holder called a monstrance. People come and pray and worship Jesus. Now there's actually a shrine to the Eucharist in Toledo, Spain, or you can go on the Internet where you can worship the Eucharist via webcam. I, I kid you not, but understand, because they think it is Jesus, Jesus corporeally present, really present, once consecrated, veneration, worship, adoration is due and you can do that via a webcam on your computer. In contrast to this ongoing sacrifice, a sacrifice that is continually, thousands of times each day, being renewed and re offered, the author of Hebrews is explicit on this point: that Jesus' sacrifice was once for all; it is finished. So the first point argues Jesus' sacrifice; it is enough; it is sufficient; it needs no supplement. It takes away sin and provides righteousness. The second point is Jesus' sacrifice is finished. It is not ongoing. It is not being repeated, re-offered. And on this, the author of Hebrews is explicitly clear. It is one of the great contrasts between Jesus' sacrifice and the sacrificial system in the temple. Turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, <clears throat> verse 26 27. For it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. You notice that emphasis in the phrase once and for all in contrast to daily Repetition. Turn to chapter 9 again, this time starting in verse 23. And And I don't think you could make this point more clearly than it's made here. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves were the better sacrifices than these For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. That should end the matter. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with the blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Your blank here is it is not to be repeated. That is one of the things that makes Jesus' sacrifice unique. In contrast, direct contrast, to the Levitic sacrificial system, Jesus is not offering himself repeatedly. He is not suffering repeatedly. He is not being crucified daily. He did it once for all. It is not to be repeated. You are not looking for a new sacrifice. You are not looking for a repeated sacrifice. You are not looking for a repetition of the presentation of Jesus. You are looking to the cross. And we celebrate a meal that points to the cross, but the meal we share is not the thing itself. It is just bread and grape juice. That is all. And it points to a death on a cross 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. And it is that death that death which is our sacrifice for sins not only is it not to be repeated but the author of Hebrews is emphatic that it is finished it is complete it is done go back to chapter 10 and again I want you to see the contrast pick it up in verse 1 for since the law has put a shadow of the good things to come is, is but sorry a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near so the law has continually offered sacrifices they can never perfect people Otherwise, they would have not ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. Which is to say, if, if the Levitic sacrifices got the job done and they worked, you wouldn't need to come back and do it again. Apply the same logic forward. If the Eucharist, as presented by Rome, really dealt with your sin, you wouldn't need it again, would you? You wouldn't need to keep coming back over and over and over. You would need it once verse three but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins now jump down in contrast so that's the he's setting up the contrast in the law in the temple there were priests who gave continual sacrifices that couldn't make perfect couldn't deal with sin we know that because the people had to keep coming back and reoffering them verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service. Take note of it. What's he do? He stands. He's working. Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, what did he do? He sat down. That's huge. That is absolutely huge. You know, you can go back in the Old Testament and you can do a study of the divinely inspired and prescribed furnishings of the tabernacle and then the temple. And you can read about the ark. You can read about the table of showbread, the altar, the sea of cast metal, the basin, the candle stands. Do you know what piece of furniture is not in the temple? A chair. Why? Because the temple is holy and you did your work and you got out of there. Turn, turn back to chapter 9. The author makes this point clearly. Verse 6 These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second one, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Which is to say, you're not messing around, you're not dallying in the Holy of Holies. You get in, you go once a year, if you're the high priest, and only with blood. You do what you need to do, and you get out. Read again, verse chapter 10, verse 12 and 13. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. He did not leave the Holy of Holies. He didn't skedaddle. He sat down. And no clearer sign can be given that his work is complete. It is finished. It stands in direct contrast to verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service. Jesus sat down. He's on to new ministry. As we'll see in our second point, he's on to his priestly ministry. But his sacrifice is complete. It is over. This is the best news for us. God has provided a fully sufficient, a fully complete, and a fully accomplished sacrifice for our sins. And it is found in Christ and in Christ alone. It is not found in our memorial meals. It is not found in the super good lives of saints. It is found in Christ alone. And the reformers had to return the church to this foundational truth just as the author of Hebrews had to return the church to this foundational truth. It is within us to drift from this. And we need to be focused that our hope is fixed on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It is finished, he said so from the cross, and he has sat down after offering his sacrifice. Christ alone, is our sacrifice for sins. This brings us now to our second point. Christ alone is our great high priest. Christ alone is our great high priest. And again, here we've got to be clear because this is a bit more nuanced. A year ago, I did a message on the Reformation and the priesthood of the believer. And the emphasis of that message was, as Christians, by virtue of being in the new covenant, you and I, are a kingdom of priests. Every Christian is a priest. What do priests do? Turn to to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5 helpfully gives us a summary of priestly service. Actually, a summary of high priestly service. We can still learn something of, of, of this from here. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relationship to God. Remember, I gave you a very overly simplified understanding of the difference between a priest and a prophet. Both stand between God and man. The prophet stands between God and men, facing men on behalf of God. He gives God's word to God's people for God. He's representing God. Moses comes down from the mountain, representing God, speaking for God, giving judgments on behalf of God. The priest stands between God and men on behalf of the people dealing with God, primarily. Now, so we see here. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relationship to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. Now, we can in a priestly way, bring the gospel to people, we can point them to Christ. And in that sense, we can pray for people and intercede for people. And we can function in the priestly sense. When you pray for your family, when you pray for your children, when you pray for your loved ones and your neighborhood, it is a priestly function that you are performing. When you read God's word, it's a priestly function you're performing. But the problem is that Rome had denied the priesthood of the believer to all Christians. So first, they they made the priesthood a subset and instituted holy orders, one of the seven sacraments, and then they elevated the responsibilities of the priest to compete with Christ, whereas the biblical understanding is that you and I are a nation of priests, but we have one and one only, high priest, one great high priest, and his prerogatives and his responsibilities are unique, they are unshared, they are essential, Christ's priesthood is necessary you won't make it to heaven without it. Our priesthood is not. I can pray for you. You must have Christ praying for you. I can intercede for you. You must have Christ intercede for you. And yet Rome had elevated the priesthood and taken upon itself that prerogative. Brief, Briefly from... From the Catechism, paragraph 1548, the minister, by reason of the sacerdotal consecration which he has received, is truly made to be like the high priest and possesses the authority to act in the power and place of the person of Christ himself, which is why the priest can announce forgiveness of sins, which, as we studied in Luke, only God can do. But because, in their understanding, the priests are acting in Christ's capacity as high priest, they can do this. The Sacrament of Orders, paragraph 1551, communicates a sacred power which none other which is none other than that of Christ. In 1563, through that sacrament, priests by the anointing of the Holy Spirit are signed with a special character and are so configured to Christ that the priest in such a way that they are able to act in the person of Christ the head. So the Pope claims the title of the vicar of Christ, his, his representation, his, his um, person standing in his stead on earth. And I think we'll see in the book of Hebrews that Christ's priesthood is unique and is unshared. Christ alone is our great high priest. And I started by saying that the great human problem is sin. And one of the titles that is unique to Christ, according to 1 Timothy 2.5, there's one mediator, between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and I want to begin there in our study of the great high priest that he is the mediator of the new covenant. Now, a mediator is a technical term for somebody who goes between two parties that are in a hostile relationship to make peace. If you're, if you're having a legal difficulties, you might sue for mediation, and some third party comes in and tries to bring a resolution. Now you and I must stand before a holy God and we have offended that holy God. We are sinful. We have day in and day out raised our fist at God and he is justly and righteously angry at our sin and we need mediation. We cannot make peace with him on our own. Job, as far back in the Old Testament as Job, cries out, Job 9, 32 and 33, speaking of God, he is not a man as I am that I might answer him that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter, arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. What Job is saying is, not only is he God and I'm not, but I'm a man and he's God. How do I, how do I de- if we are to come to terms, if we are to make peace, how can I do that when I can't even stand before him and speak to him? Because he's God and not a man. I need an arbiter who can lay a hand on us both. And through Jesus' humanity, This is why the incarnation is so essential. Jesus, as we'll see, can relate to and sympathize and identify with us as man. And as God, he can identify with and, and speak for God. And so here's the one who is the bridge. Here's the one who is the mediator of the new covenant. What does that mean? What that means is point one, he stands between God and man. Hebrews chapter nine. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, verse 24. 15 declares it, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. What does that mean? Verse 24. When Christ had entered not into the holy places made with hands, not the earthly temple, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. When Jesus sat down from offering his sacrifice, it wasn't to take a rest. (laughs) What is Jesus doing now? He is still working on our behalf. He is still carrying out our salvation, not by dealing with our sin and guilt, but as our great high priest, now appearing before God on our behalf. What is Jesus at this very moment doing? He's in God's throne room on our behalf, interceding for us. He, and he alone, stands between God and man. Not the church, but Christ. Christ alone is the mediator. This is why Jesus can say, no one comes to the Father except through me. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. You do not need to come through me. You do not need to come through any other human man or woman. You need Christ. His mediation is essential. Not mine, not yours. What does that mean then? According to Hebrews 10, Therefore, because Christ stands between God and man, we have confidence to draw near to God. Therefore, we have confidence to draw near to God. This is probably the, the most helpful truth of this, because in, in the Roman system, you need the priests, you need the sacerdotal system, you need the sacraments to draw near to God. And you only want to draw so near, because God's really kind of scary. And be much easier, just like the people at Sinai who didn't want to talk to God. Remember that you talked to God for us, Moses. God's scary. So Mary, can you talk to Jesus for us? Because what boy can't can say no to his mother? That's the logic. I, I'm scared to deal directly with God. I'd rather have somebody else deal with God for me. But look at, look at Hebrews chapter 10. Look at this glorious truth. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, now remember, the author of Hebrews has already said Jesus has entered there first, he's there ahead of us, and he sat down, he didn't leave, he's still there. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest. There's two grounds to this confidence. One, Jesus' death. Two, Jesus' priesthood. The very two points we're looking at this morning. Because of Jesus' death, and we are clothed in his blood and righteousness, and because we have a great high priest, verse 21, over the house of God, let us draw near the true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water and let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Because of Jesus' death, and sacrifice. And because of his current priesthood, you and I get the amazing privilege of following after him into the Holy of Holies, the place where only the high priest would go once a year with blood not his own, and he wouldn't dally, he'd get out. Christ is gone, he has torn the veil, and he has offered the sacrifice of himself, and he has sat down, and he intercedes for us, and he bids us come. And you need no other mediation to draw near to God, you need no human priest. You need no earthly man or woman. Jesus alone is sufficient for you and for I to draw near to God. Read read that again. This is the best possible news. Where once there was hostility, not only has Jesus removed the hostility, we are bid to enter. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near the true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean. Because of Jesus, and only in Jesus, you can draw near to the throne of God itself. You can draw near to God without need of any other human intercession. You, this, when we talk about sometimes a personal relationship with Jesus, what we're talking about is without mediation. I, I deal directly with God through Jesus in my prayers, my spiritual life with no other in-betweens. That doesn't discount the, the, the purpose of the body of Christ and the church. But what it means is my access to God is to the throne room of God via the priesthood of Jesus and the Holy Spirit helping me pray as I ought. That is enough. That is enough. We therefore have confidence to draw near. I'll turn back to Chapter 7. Something else unique about Jesus, priesthood. He saves us to the uttermost through his constant intercession on our behalf. Jesus has saved us. Jesus is saving us. And according to Hebrews, he will save us. What makes that confusion make sense is that save is being used differently in each sense. Jesus has saved us once for all, by offering himself on the cross for our justification, for our forgiveness. That, that is complete, that is done. He doesn't leave us there. He, he is not gonna let us go. He will hold us fast. He will walk with us and shepherd us and lead us through this life. We will be sanctified, and he does that through his priestly ministry, interceding on our behalf. Look at Hebrews chapter seven, verses 23 through 25. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus right now is praying, beseeching, interceding on our behalf. Now, I can pray for you. This is, where gets, this is where, like I said, where it gets tricky. You and I can intercede on behalf of other people. We don't do it constantly. We have to sleep, and eventually we die. Jesus does it without ceasing, always. The other difference is this. My, your intercession, it may accomplish something. James tells us the prayer of a righteous man avails much. But you can get by without my prayers and intercession. They're they're good. I hope your prayers for me are good. This this is the one that is effective. This is the intercession that is necessary and needed. This is is the intercession by which we can say confidently, he will hold me fast. This is the intercession you need that you must have. And this Christ's high priestly ministry is unique. He saves to the uttermost. I can't do that. Priests can't do that. The pope can't do that. Christ and Christ alone can do that, can make that bold claim that he, through his intercession, can save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is the best news. In Christ and Christ alone, you have an intercessor. You have one offering up prayers on your behalf. You have one who can not only can save you in the past sense, but continually hold you fast and save you now as you're sanctified. Turn back to chapter four of Hebrews. He sympathizes with us and gives us grace and again. These are things in a lesser sense we can do, but Christ does uniquely. When you comfort others, when you sympathize with them, when you ease them, when you speak words of truth and comfort to them, there's a priestly service you're serving in, absolutely. And we are to weep with those who weep, grieve with those who grieve, rejoice with those who rejoice. And yet Christ's function as our high priest is unique. Verse 14, since then we have a great high priest, Who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Notice, this truth, the author of Hebrews is saying, the truth of Jesus' priesthood is meant to give us confidence so we hold fast. Don't drift away to other things, to other priests, to other sacrifices. Hold fast our confession. Why? Verse 15 We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. That's what most other religions have, are gods who are transcendent but not imminent, gods who are so different from us they can't possibly understand. Plato addressed the issue, can man be friends with God? And he said, of course not. Because in order to be friends with someone, you have to have some point of contact where you can say, ah, oh, me too. And God, by virtue of being God and us being creature, has to be totally different, totally other. And there is some biblical truth to that. So God says, you don't make an image of me. What will you compare me to that I am like? And the other great monotheistic religions of Islam and Judaism, they get that. But only in Christianity we find this God who is other, who is holy, 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 Has condescended, has taken on flesh, become like us, and now we have a point of contact. Now we have a great high priest, he says it negatively, <laughs> For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Put that positively. If we don't have that, what do we have? We have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And this is supposed to encourage us. This truth that Jesus Christ can sympathize with you in every respect, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, the mercy seat itself. Why? That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I can be gracious to you, but I cannot give you grace. Only the living Christ can. And so we can comfort one another. <laughs> and we can we can sympathize with one another. But I can't sympathize with you in every respect. You've had experiences in your life that I haven't. There are temptations I can't sympathize with. I can try to I can try to offer you comfort. Here, we have a high priest in every respect has been tempted as we are. He can sympathize with us. And so when we come to the throne in our weakness, trembling, he's not going to look at us in disgust and say, why on earth are you struggling with that? That's disgusting. Get out of here. He gives grace and help in time of need. That is our great high priest. And he shares that office uniquely with no one. It is his and that is why we draw near, because he saves to the uttermost and he sympathizes with us and gives us help. And finally, point number nine our great high priest will come again to save us. I told you, we've been saved by Christ, we're being saved by Christ, we will be saved by Christ. We're going to read Hebrews chapter 9, 23 through 28. And notice, the three appearings of Jesus in the text. Notice the three appearings. He said to appear three times, past tense, present tense, future tense. What he's doing in each of those appearings, all linked with his priestly service. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves had better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God in our behalf. What is Jesus doing now? He's in the presence of God in our behalf. That's where he's appearing now. That's what he's doing now. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with the blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared. Past tense. Once for all. The end of the age. Why? to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So he is appearing on our behalf. He has appeared to put away sin. And just as it is appointed for man once to die and then comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And I would suggest to you that Christ gathering us together Coming for us to save us is a unique function of his priesthood. The church will not be coming again for you to save you. The bishops will not be doing. This is Christ and Christ alone. So it, it is a great blessing that Christ has given us his church. I want to call the, the worship team up as we prepare to sing our closing song. I'm like, the church is not something to throw away. You know, don't go so far in the other direction. It's just you and Jesus walking off to the sunset. But understand the role of Christ's bride. Resist the temptation and the danger of of elevating the church to prerogatives, privileges, responsibilities that are unique to Christ. Remember that our salvation is based upon the truth of Scripture alone. It is through God's grace alone. It is by faith. By faith in Jesus Christ you receive these benefits and our salvation is found in him alone. He is our sacrifice. We need look nowhere else. He is our great high priest. Now this series, we've read some quotes from Martin Luther. I want to end by reading one from John Calvin. As we prepare to sing in Christ alone. This is a wonderful quote. We see that the whole of our salvation and all of its parts are comprehended in Christ. We should therefore take care not to derive the least portion of it from anywhere else. If we seek salvation, we are taught by the very name of Jesus that it is of him. If we seek any of the gifts of the spirit, they'll be found in his anointing. If we seek strength, it lies in his dominion. If gentleness, it appears in his birth. If we seek redemption, it lies in his passion. If acquittal, in his condemnation. If remission of sins, in his cross. If satisfaction, in his sacrifice. If purification, in his blood. If mortification of the flesh, in his tomb. If newness of life, In his resurrection, if immortality, in the same. If inheritance of the heavenly kingdom, in his entrance into heaven. If protection, if security, if abundant supply of all blessings in his kingdom. If untroubled expectation of judgment, in the power given to him to judge. In short, since rich store of every kind of good abounds in him, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. Please stand as we sing in Christ alone.